The following podcast was recorded live on the main stage of the Melbourne Thrones Con on the 21st of May 2017. It was hosted by Aussie Vassals and was a discussion on theory crafting in the fandom. As you'll notice, the sound quality is pretty rough. This is because the speakers were facing away from the stage and are intermingled with the rest of the con, which included stalls and cosplay events. But I've cleaned it up as best I could, and most of it's still legible. The podcast contains spoilers for all published books in George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, and all aired episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones. We hope you enjoy listening. We are a podcast dedicated to A Song of Ice and Fire and HBO's Game of Thrones. And today we're here to discuss uh, some of the many, many conspiracy theories that have been crafted by the fans. So, my name is Michael. Uh, and my name is Duncan. And yeah, as you can see, the title is Conspiracies of Ice and Fire. And we're going to be covering some of the, the big theories, uh, including Jon Snow's parentage. Uh, the Maggie the Frog Prophecy, and the Notorious Merlin Conspiracy, which I love. Yeah, so ranging from pretty sensible to kind of crazy. We're going to cover a break. Um, and after this, we'll ask your opinions, and we'll open up to some Q&A. So if you have any theories that you've always wanted to discuss, you want to know if that's true or not, yeah, save until then. We'd love to hear it. So, this is a really interesting time to be a fan of the Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, as of 46 days ago, we are now in the longest wait, it's the longest span of time, uh, that George has not released a new book. Um, and with the show in full swing, this really does represent the pinnacle of fandom engagement within the community. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think that arduous wait between books does contribute to a lot of theorizing. I think in, in some ways fans are so desperate to find out what happens next, but they don't necessarily have new content. They have, they're almost forced to go back to old content and look deeper and dig deeper and figure out, you know, the, the piece together the clues and figure out what's going to happen next. Yeah, you need something to fill the void while you're waiting. Fill the void, that's what it's yeah, and yeah, it certainly does have an effect on sustained theory crafting, what this does to your mind, essentially. And I think the other reason that we chose this topic is because theory crafting does play such a big role in fandom. I feel like the way Martin presents uh, the mysteries and the conflicting accounts of history, it really encourages us to interrogate the books, you know, try and piece, piece together the pieces, as um, Ian was saying, it rewards that kind of attention to detail, it really rewards that, that scrutiny. Yeah, he definitely wants you to take a look beneath the surface level and yeah, find out the mysteries that he has intentionally laid within the series. Um, and I think Martin, just going back to the title of the, the panel, Martin really cultivates a sense of conspiracy in two ways. There's the court intrigue in places like King's Landing and Meereen and the Night's Watch, I guess, to an extent. But there's also all of the visions and the prophecies that various characters are confronted with. You know? Yeah, magical induced visions, magical speculation, yeah. essentially. And um, 
And it just creates such a vibrant community, such a vibrant fandom. People, you know, there's, there's competitions, there's conflicting solutions to different mysteries. Yeah, who has the better theory, who wants to out-theory each other, and who can make the craziest shit up. Yeah, it's, like, it's a lot of competition. Yeah, I think it speaks to Martin's rich world-building that he defends fully to exercise uh, those creative and critical faculties. Alright, so should we start with our first major theory for discussion today? Um, this is the mystery of who is Jon Snow's mother? Yeah, this is probably the oldest mystery in the series, and there is up there. And uh, we've got a bit of a recap just to catch people up. Michael, did you want to start? Yeah, so obviously this is the precursor, the progenitor for all other theories, essentially, as it is the oldest mystery in the books. Um, the moment that Game of Thrones starts, we are presented with Ned and John, and John obviously appearing as the bastard son of Ned Stark, which is something a bit suspicious. Normally, honourable Ned would get a stain on his honour to have a bastard, um, and he's unusually tight-lipped on who the mother is. So, um, this has caused a lot of people in-universe to, to speculate, who, who is this mother? Uh, who was she? Was she high-born? Was she low-born? And so a couple of candidates have been proposed by people living in this universe. You have people like Shara Dane, which was the beautiful noble woman that many speculate Ned might have been attracted to, or he married Catelyn, uh, who committed suicide at the end of Robert's Rebellion, which this taking uh, her baby away may have taken on all. We have a mysterious woman known as Lila that Robert, uh, Ned mentions to Robert a couple of times. May have been a wet nurse at the castle of Starfall, um, but other than that, we don't really know too much about her either. And there was briefly a third candidate proposed: the idea of a fisherman's daughter who was found on the sister islands, who helped Ned get back to Winterfell during Robert's rebellion. Um, so yeah, a couple of theories, candidates have been proposed, but none of them have really gotten anywhere. So most people are just content to let it stick that Ned has a bastard on some unknown woman. Um, but obviously what makes it interesting is that fans have had a look at this and devised the fourth scenario, um, the idea that of course Ned isn't the father at all, and the true parents are Ned's sister, Lyanna, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen. Um, now there is a lot of evidence that has been proposed that essentially supports this idea. I could go on all day about it, so I'll just try and keep the summary short. But yeah, there's a couple of key points in history uh, that sort of point towards this theory being true. One of which is in the Turnian Parenthood, which was the prelude to Robert's Rebellion. You have uh, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen crowning Lyanna as the Queen of Love and Beauty, and this caused quite a scandal because Lyanna was not Prince Rhaegar's wife, and Rhaegar was expected to crown his wife Elia. Um, you additionally have Ned recalling finding uh, Liana in a bed of blood as she was dying. Now, some people have interpreted this to mean a uh, birthing bed, because you obviously do get a lot of bleeding when you're giving birth. Um, and then finally, you have some of the prophetic visions that Danny comes across. Uh, particularly, you have the image of uh, blue rose growing out of a chink of ice. Um, blue roses have often been used as a symbol to represent Liana. Whereas the chink of ice is thought to represent the wall and thereby representing John. So, yeah, no other theory has been uh, discussed, 
disseminated, spread amongst the fandom, and generally accepted by, I would say, a significant majority. A lot of people are taking this to be true, even without definite proof uh, from the author himself. Um, and of course this serves as the original theory, because once you realise that such a, a large and well-conceived mystery can be hidden within these books, you, you start asking what other mysteries are there to be found. Um, so yeah, if you've only heard of one theory, then this is probably the one you've heard of. Yeah, and the other part of the theory is that she extracts a mysterious promise from him? Yeah, yeah. promise me Ned. This is uh, a recurring motif that Ned always thinks about, that essentially haunts him when he thinks of Liana. And, and fans often speculate that the promise is to protect John, essentially from Robert, who is about to hunt down every living Targaryen and hates Rhaegar with a passion. Um, however, an opposing theory has developed in the last couple of years, and that is the R plus L equals D theory. And it posits that Rhaegar and Lyanna did not give birth to a son, but rather to a daughter. This child, Daenerys, was transported in secret to Dragonstone, possibly with the help of Ned and House Dane, uh, where she was swapped with the stillborn child of King Aerys and Queen Rhaella, or alternatively, she was reunited with their son, Viserys, sometime afterwards. So the theory contains a lot of wild speculation, clearly. However, it can be whittled down to two main arguments. <coughs> Firstly, Danny's memories of her childhood seem impossible. She recalls growing up in a house with a red door on Bravos, under the care of Sir William Darry. She often thinks wistfully about running through green fields, the smell of perfume, and playing next to a lemon tree. However, when Arya travels to Bravos in Book 4, she describes a rainy, foggy metropolis comprised of a hundred islands linked by stone bridges. The city smells of salt and brine, and there are no trees to be found anywhere. There is also a number of passages throughout the books which indicate that citrus trees only grow in temperate regions such as Gorn and the Free Cities. These contradictions cast doubt on Danny's early life, suggesting that Viserys lied to her about the two growing in Bravos. And this is the interesting part. When the lemon tree question was put to George, he replied that it was a good insight into future revelations. Uh, the second argument put forth for R plus L equals D is that King Robert, when King Robert orders the assassination of Daenerys, Ned thinks back to the promise that Lyanna asks of her, uh, asks of him rather, a promise he considers broken. Now this doesn't make sense because if John is Lyanna's son, then he is still safe, he's up the wall, and the promise hasn't been broken. Now the obvious question is, if John is not the son of Robert and uh, of uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna, who are his real parents? Now proponents of the theory cite a passage from a Barrison chapter uh, in Book 5, in which the old knight recalls Ashara Dane being dishonored by a Stark. However, he does not say Eddard Stark, but simply Stark, leading many readers to conclude that he was referring to Ned's roguish older brother, Brandon. Uh, this reading is bolstered by the fact that in Book 1, Barrison seems to regard Ned as a little man. Uh, Barristan recalls that Ashara gave birth to a stillborn, which may have been the cause of her suicide. However, proponents of R plus L equals D claim their child was John. Thus, it follows Ned claimed John as his own, and Danny, left the, Danny was left with the Danes, who he trusted to reunite with the Targaryens. So, Michael, uh, I guess the first question is do you side with the old faithful R plus L equals J or the 
new movie, Arthur Selwyn's D. To me, it's not really a choice. It's, it's got to be Arthur Selwyn's J. Um, when you just consider the body of evidence, how much there is. Um, you know, some people have written essays compiling all this evidence together. Um, and the story just seems to be so structured around this central mystery that, yeah, to me, there can be no other alternative. Yeah, I feel that I wish there was someone here to prevent our cross-elegance D, but I, I fall inside of uh, the old, old theory as well. I think it is good to have alternate theories because I don't think, you know, we shouldn't become too complacent in our assumptions. However, our cross-elegance D just makes zero sense logically and narrative. I mean, the first obvious um, contradiction is it seems very out of character for Ned. You know, if Danny is a star, then why wouldn't Ned claim her as, her, as his own? Or else put her somewhere safe. You know, we know that Robert is hunting Targaryens. Why would he allow her to go to Essos and pose as a slightly different Targaryen? Um, why not take her back to Winterfell as he did? Yeah, I mean, no real logic to it at all. I think what it represents is if you go back to you know 1997 and you look at the messenger boards um, that have been archived discussing a song of ice and fire. There were already some people that had just read the first book and were like, hmm, something's up with Rhaegar and Lyanna, you know, I think something happened between them. So it's conceivable that some people have known about this mystery for 20 years. Um, and after a while, just thinking about it, it's certainly a shock and a revelation at first, but after a while that shock sort of wears off. And once that wears off, you sort of go searching for something else to fill that void. Like, it's really a gateway drug. And once once you know about R plus L equals J, you end up searching more and more crazy things just for the thrill of it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, one of the major arguments against or for R plus L equals D is that R plus L equals J is too obvious. Um, and Martin is all about subverting our expectations. However, I don't think it is obvious. I think it's only obvious to people because it's been theorised for such a long time. You know, as you say, 1997, when it was first put together on um, Angel Fire message boards, I guess. Um, but yeah, on my first read through, I didn't put it together until I started talking to people about it. It was only then that it, that it yeah, came when to other me. people pointed out to you. And I guess the internet wasn't as big a factor in people's lives, so they kind of, they were forced to solve these mysteries on their own. So I guess the internet's a bit of a double-edged sword. It, it allows this, these great collaborations and, and attention to detail and, and, um, and in exchange of interpretations, but it also, it's a bit of a shortcut. It cuts off that um, individual and solitary puzzle solving. Yeah, I would say that these books were written on two key assumptions, you know, back in 1991, which initially got the idea to write this book series. One was that they would be completed relatively quickly, that they would not take 20 years plus to be finished. Yeah, it was originally meant to be a trilogy. Yeah, a trilogy that would take, yeah, five or six years, you know, something short. And then the other assumption was just that um, they were written essentially before the age of the internet. You know, some people were on the internet, but it's nowhere near as ubiquitous as it is now. And once you have that hive mind of fans who all collaborate and point out things that everyone else has missed, um, these mysteries, which are very difficult for a single person to solve, become very obvious as a group puts their minds to it. Yeah, and for me at least, I'm definitely one of the newer fans. I didn't start reading the books until after the first season of the show, 
once episode 10 dropped, I was like, I need to find out what happens next. I devoured all five books over you know, two months. I should have spaced it out. I didn't realize how long the next book would take to come out. <laughs> but um, I always wonder, how would it have felt you know, back in the year 2000 to read The Red Wedding and not to have anyone to talk to about it? How, like, how traumatizing and alone you must feel. You know, it so must have been terrible. We have yeah. a bit of a you know, you can talk about these things these days, but you know, back in those days, who was there to talk to? You have no one to express your grief and just send emotions when you're reading these books. Yeah. So it definitely um, the internet has benefited the community. I would say there's a positive, but it just means that yeah, some of these mysteries, which were very hard for a single reader, they're a lot more easier to solve now. Um, just to go back to R plus L equals D, there's a few other problems I wanted to. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, so it seems like there's too many logistical problems, uh, too many witnesses for Danny's birth on, on, uh, on Dragonstone. It would have taken too long for whoever to, to transport the baby to Dawn. Um, they would have had to obey Stannis' fleet in the narrow sea. So I think the reason that R plus L equals J fits so well is because only Ned and Howland Reed would have known about it. And now Ned's dead. Howland Reed is literally the only person who can attest to, to the truth of what happened with the Tower of Joy. You know, that's how it remained a secret. Yeah, it went through very few people. It was just Ned returning home after all, after all his companions were killed. So, yeah, it's very easy for that secret to be preserved. And in any other way, there would be so many people that it has to go through that, yeah, it just seems impractical. And, yeah, it's too complicated. I think. My main objection, the most important objection for me, uh, is um, the theory fails to add any narrative value to the story. Um, you know, the, the revelation would be instead of Danny being Rhaegar's daughter, uh, she is, sorry, instead of Danny being Rhaegar's sister, she is her daughter. And to that I say, so what? You know, she's still a Targaryen. She's yeah, still, she's not anything new. Yeah, she still considers herself the heir to the, the rightful heir of the Iron Throne. She's still basing that on her family name. Um, she still comes from the, the same bloodline that the prince that was promised uh, prophecy relies on. She's still a princess and a third child. It would be a superfluous reveal, I think. Other, you know, um, on the other hand, I think the reveal that John is, is the son of Rhaegar would be a genuine revelation because it is a, he's a completely marginalized and isolated figure who has no inkling that he was born from royalty and prophecy. And two, Danny believes she is the last Targaryen left. So yeah, that's also there for a dramatic revelation. I also feel that um, Daenerys, from a narrative perspective, she really benefits from having Aerys as her father, because at the end of A Storm of Swords, it makes this, again, great reveal when Barristan comes forward and says, your, your father was called the Mad King in Westeros, so no one ever told you. And, and it causes Daenerys to have this sort of personality crisis. She starts questioning, am I mad? Am I gonna be my father's daughter? Um, and this is something that she's constantly asking herself throughout A Dance with Dragons, and yeah, it makes for good drama. And so I feel if we get the revelation, oh no, Rhaegar's actually a father, uh, yeah, it takes that away. So it's nowhere near as interesting. What do you make of the lemon tree? What do you think that means? I think George made a mistake when he was initially writing his Game of Thrones draft, because uh, we actually know that when George was writing the draft for Game of Thrones, they took all of the Daenerys chapters and they released them as a short novella called Blood of the Dragon. And in this, um, you have a couple of differences, like the, the house with the red door and the lemon tree initially appears in Tirosh, 
and Tarosha is a much more uh, suitable climate for lemon trees. Um, but then, as the final script of the Game of Thrones was getting published, George made a few changes, and one of them was Lemon Tree with a house for rent was moved to Brabus. And so either one of two things happened at this point. George, um, he hadn't established the specific climate for Brabus, um, or he just didn't, didn't even think about it. Or he did, and was like, hmm, I, mean, I guess it's a bit weird you'd have a lemon tree in this, you know, foggy climate, but uh, it's not that weird. I'm, I'm sure no one would be crazy enough to base an entire theory on the location of a single lemon tree. That was, that was right after he thought, and I'll finish these books in a good five years and move on to other things. <laughs> I sort of disagree with you because I think it is intriguing just because he brings it up a number of times. There is a number of messages about the lemon tree, including in Up Until the Winter Winter sample jack. You know, that's, that's kind of what spawned the theory. It didn't really exist until early, uh, early March 2014. Um, however, I don't think it's actually proof of anything. I think it's just, it's just an interesting little tidbit. There might be some revelation about Danny's, Danny's childhood, but it's not proof of, you know, this connection to Rhaegar and Rihanna being your parents. It's too much of a logical leap. Um, I also think it's pretty easily explained, even within the, the canon of the story. Um, the House of the Red Dwarf could simply have been located on the mainland. There's an area called Rebosian Coastlands, which is Philly, goes south all the way to Andalus. She could have easily lived there. It makes more sense for me to, to house Danny and this area who are being hunted by Robert in a, in a rural area rather than metropolis. Yeah, any number of logical explanations. Perhaps we should ask the audience what they think. Yeah, well, we can do that at the end, I guess. Okay, okay. okay. you got more to say? Um, any, any thoughts on their feeling guilt about all the other problems? Can that be, can that be explained? I would just think that's uh, his guilt over, not necessarily guilt, his sadness over having to watch Liana die. That's just probably all of his emotions being dredged up. I don't think there's anything more than important than that, basically. Yeah, I mean, it could be Ned feeling guilty over not being the job, not directly being there to protect the father or because he's in things like he sent John to the war. He could face hardship and danger. So maybe uh, something to do with that. It, it could also just be guilt over all the promises cost Ned, uh, the burdening of his marriage, making John feel like an outcast, things like that. Um, but I think the preoccupation with Danny and John's parentage is interesting, and it's a good indication of how important they're seen by the fan. They are seen as the heroes of the story, even though through most of the series they're uh, peripheral, peripheral to the War of the Five Kings, they're seen as fulfilling some kind of prophetic role in the, the climate. Yeah, they certainly represent, uh, along with Tyrion, the, the primary protagonists of the three separate storylines, you know, in the north, at King's Landing, and in the east. So I'd say if you were to just boil it down to yeah, three characters, Tyrion, Daniel, and Jonna, I think they have the most chapters altogether when compared to all other characters. So yeah, they're definitely positioned as main characters in a sense. So it seems like Howland Reed, the character of Howland Reed, the Lord of Greywater Watch, is the only character who knows the truth so far. He's sort of a famous character because he's mentioned a lot in the series, but we have yet to actually meet him. Um, and Rob was always going to be in the end towards the middle of the three, but the Red Wedding famously interrupted that. Um, do you think we'll ever meet Howland Reed? Will we have a I, think, I think the narrative demands that we have to meet Howland Reed. You know, we have to have this revelation of John's parentage in some way, shape, or form. And 
yeah, as you said, Alan Reed's probably the only person who knows this, so it's gotta be him. What about Lila? Do you think she's still around or would have been a of care of time? Maybe, maybe not. I honestly don't think she's that important. She was just a witness to John, and that's about it. I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see her at all. Um, before we move on, we should probably address the elephant in the room, which is that Game of Thrones seems to confirm R plus L equals J. You see the see Bran singing with the Tower of Joy, Ned comforting Lyanna, and seeing her baby son, and then it sort of superimposes it with Jon Snow's face, which seems seems like a pretty pretty very yeah very strong hints, if not outright confirmation. The question is, do we consider the show canon with the books? Well, there have been differences between the show and the books, but I do get the sense that when you get to some of these big, major revelations, there's no way that they're different from the books, because, you know, why would David and Dan change these things from George's writing? You know, there's just no, no plausible explanation. So, you know, I, mean, I would say yes in this instance. Uh, however, I still refuse to accept that Stannis is defeated in the Battle of Winterfell. It's just, it just has too much command. Well, I wouldn't class that as a major event. It's moderately important, like, and it is very important to the central story structure, but it's not on the same level as something like the revelation of John's parents. And it's possible they sort of merge Stannis' story with John, and John takes that victory. That's something you could sort of write around, but yeah, I don't see how you could write around this. Um, did you have anything more to say on that theory, or should we move on to the front? Yeah, that's, that's about all I got to say on that. Alright, so one of the prophecies which plays a big role in Cersei's childhood and basically her outlook on life is the one she receives from Maggie the Frog as a child. So she becomes enamored with visiting Prince Rhaegar and she goes to meet this witch essentially to have her fortune told. Um, but what she essentially gets is not what she bargained for. So should we read it out? Yeah, yeah, so we controlled the other you, you can use the Albia Maggie from. So this is the prophecy she receives um, in the books. And this is a flashback in the Feast of Crows. Yeah, yeah, we first see this in the Feast of Crows. Okay, so Cersei says, When will I wed the prince? Never. You will marry a king. I will be queen now. Queen you shall be until there comes another, younger and more beautiful, to take away all you want dear and cast you down. Will the king and I have children? Six and ten for him, and three for you. Gold will be their crowns, and gold will be their shrouds. And when you have drowned yourself in your tears, the Valonkar shall wrap his hands around your white coat and choke the life from you. <laughs> in, uh, a passage like that tends to stick with you, um, as it at least stuck with Cersei. Yeah, so let's break down the different lines of the prophecy. So the first one is, Never you will wed the king. And that seems to be a confirmation that maybe does have prophetic abilities because Rhaegar, the prince, dies on the trident and Cersei marries Robert after he's crowned king. Yeah, so obviously Cersei marries a king instead of a prince. I know Cersei initially interprets that to mean, oh, I'll marry Rhaegar when he's a king, but again, that's not to be. And it's that fact, that first fact, that ensures the prophecy continues to haunt her, so throughout yeah, the Yeah, yeah, definitely. She ain't no parlor charlatan. She's the real deal in terms of prophetic abilities. Uh, so the next slide is, 
Queen you shall be until there comes another, younger and more beautiful, to cast you down and take all that you are dear. So who is the younger and more beautiful queen? Well, the person that Cersei thinks this is is Marjorie. Um, she sees Marjorie as someone that's coming to, to steal Tommen away, to take her, and this is what drives her to essentially try and remove Marjorie from the game and, and get rid of her. So she's the main candidate, certainly what Cersei thinks. Yeah, she's the prime candidate. She also comes from a powerful family and she's marrying, marrying Tommen, so she's supplanting Cersei's familial and political power. Um, she, Cersei also harbors strong suspicions because uh, against the Tyrells because of the Gardener coin that uh, Varys leaves uh, in Tyrion's cell, so she connects that, that uh, escape with the Tyrells. She also has rampant paranoia by the time we get to a feast of so who isn't she paranoid about coming together? So the marks against Marjorie, I guess, is it's too obvious. The whole point of prophecy is it's supposed to undermine your expectations, so it's not the obvious choice. Um, it's also, I mean, Marjorie's described as very pretty. She's, she's only 15 in the, in the books. But she's not really described as the beauty that Cersei was, so the idea that she's more beautiful than Cersei is, is sort of contradictory. I wouldn't put too much in, in stock in yeah, descriptions of beauty. I think beauty is in the eye of the holder. Um, I remember when Cersei was looking at her and she thinks, ah, no way is she hotter than I am. And that's obviously Cersei's bias filtering in. It shows her narcissism and her paranoia, I guess. Uh, the next candidate will be Danny. I mean, she arguably poses a bigger threat to House Lannister because she intends to avenge her Targaryen family, and the Lannisters obviously played such a big role in, in uh, torturing them, both in killing Jamie, killing the Mad King, and, um, and the mountain slaughtering the children of Rhaegar. Yeah, um, she obviously she's got the means, she has the motive, she is a queen. Um, and this is something that I and a lot of people in the fandom sort of initially attached to, the idea that Cersei had got it wrong because she tends to get a lot of these things wrong and then it would be Danny who is the one to cast her down and take all she holds here along those lines. Danny's also describing as having this sort of otherworldly Targaryen beauty which could fit the prophecy. Yeah, like most Targaryens, she's, she's hotter than this earth. The, the mark against it, though, is that Danny specifically doesn't have children, so she, she wouldn't be the one to, to kill uh, Cersei's children. I don't know if those are technically intertwined. Right. I think it's just relating to how this is going to affect Cersei specifically. Uh, another candidate might be Sansa. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, she was slated to be a queen at one point. Um, she might marry and become another queen at a later point. Maybe they could have a queen in the north if there's no other Starks left. So she does have the potential to be a queen. Um, yeah, she has, like Danny, she has a motive to, to avenge her family and hurt uh, the Lannisters. Um, but she seems a bit too marginalised at this point in the Vale to be an immediate threat to Cersei. Yeah, yeah, her current positioning is in the Vale, and the plot seems to suggest that she's going to go north. And I'm thinking, at the end of A Dance with Dragons and going into the Winds of Winter, Cersei's downfall seems pretty imminent. Um, and so from a logistical perspective, I just don't think Sansa is able to, to do this, to achieve this. Uh, the out-of-field out candidate might be Brienne, uh, just because she's mockingly referred to as Brienne and Beauty throughout the series. Um, and she's also given she's the opposite of Cersei in that she's beautiful on the inside rather than the outside. Um, and that's something that Jamie is very attracted to, which causes distance between the two lovers. 
maybe she's not a queen. I think it's got to be a queen, or else why would Maggie the Frog say until there comes another another queen? Obviously, is what she's referring to. That's true. She's not a queen. Uh, so let's move on to the next line. Uh, so Cersei asks, "Will the king and I have children?" And Maggie replies, six and ten for him, three for you. Gold shall be their crowns, and gold their shrouds. And when you and when your tears have drowned you, the Valenquire shall wrap his hands around your pale white throat and choke and choke the life from you. Uh, so just at the beginning, Maggie, another confirmation that she's a fortune teller is she predicts the births of Robert's bastards and Cersei's bastards. Yeah, and is able to specify that they're separate. You know, Cersei's children are not related to Robert. So again. This is the real deal. She's a witch, or whatever. She has magics. And that's something that Cersei doesn't even realise until she's an adult. But that was true. Yeah, she realises how it fits in. Um, yeah, what comes after that? The idea of gold shall be their crowns, gold shall be their shrouds. Um, so I've always interpreted this to mean that they'll all be crowned in some way, and then they'll all have deaths, because a shroud is obviously what you put over a dead person. And the fact that they're gold means they might have very Lannistery deaths. I don't know, how, how did you interpret that? Yeah, I mean, the crowning implies that Tommen would be the next one in the, in the fire range because he's been crowned king. Marjorie has another, well, I guess she was sort of crowned queen by the, the Sand Snakes. Otherwise, oh, Marcella, you mean? Sorry, Marcella. You said Marjorie. Marcella, yeah. Yeah, I think that um, George might have intended to go a little further with the Marcella crowning incident, but his five-year gap plans. Um, it was more of a figurative crowning that we now have. But yeah, in a sense, all three children have been crowned. Um, you know, Joffrey's king, Tommy's king. Marcella is a queen for, at least, yeah, figuratively for a while. Uh, and in the show, they have actually died, so this could be another confirmation. Yeah, Marcella was poisoned, Tommen jumps off the out of the castle, so yeah, they're all dead. Um, the key thing is that they obviously will die before Cersei. So the, the uh, ominous woman is, uh, or term rather, is Balanquah, and Cersei doesn't initially know what that means, but she later learns that it's High Valerian for Little Brother. Um, who do you think that could refer to? I mean, the obvious candidate is Tyrion. Yeah, so um, this is what Cersei thinks, is that her little brother is Tyrion, Tyrion's younger. And this is one of the things that motivates Cersei's ill treatment and hatred. I mean, she hates Cersei for a number of, she hates Tyrion for a number of reasons. But yeah, this is one, the idea that Tyrion is going to be one to, to get her, to kill her at some point. Um, and again, I would say that this is a case of Cersei getting it wrong, and that there is a much better candidate out there that is her brother, Jaime. Um, obviously, Cersei and Jamie have twins, but we've been specifically told that Cersei came out first, which makes Jamie technically a younger brother to her. Um, and so, yeah, the reasons why I would go for this theory is the idea that throughout a feast of crows, Jamie becomes increasingly disillusioned with Cersei, um, and just the fact that. Cersei would never once consider that this could be Jane, and it would be just such a genuine surprise to her that that would make it particularly rich. Yeah, and we see Jane drifting away from her before to his ultimate decision to abandon her to the trial um, and to ride on further into the Riverlands. Like he's kind of reinventing himself, I guess, and stepping out of her shadow in book four. So it could suggest a growing discontent between the two. Um, 
yeah, I think Tyrion, again, like Marjorie, is probably too obvious of a candidate for that to be the case. I mean, he definitely has it in him to kill Cersei. You can see, as much as Cersei hates Tyrion, you know, Cersei gets the same back from, from him. Yeah, I'm sure if Tyrion had the opportunity and the means, he would kill Cersei, but just from what we know now, Tyrion is like a thousand leagues away in Marine. So, again, just logistically, I don't think he has the potential to do this. The imagery of the choking hands, though, it harkens uh, back to the way Shay dies with the, the uh, hands. Oh, the circle of hands, yeah. which is the symbol for the hand of the king. Twisting around her, it made me think of that. Um, and yeah, probably too obvious for candidate. Jamie, I'd probably go on with Jamie. Um, another possible candidate, this is getting a bit more left field, though, is the hound. I mean, he's not literally Cersei's little brother, but he's, I guess he's kind of. He does qualify as a younger brother, which could be, which could be, you know, third of Westeros. Um, I mean, you know, he's implied to have been rescued by the monks on the choir, so he, he may still be alive. Um, he's famously the younger, younger brother of Gregor, uh, and he also lived in the Westerlands, so I guess he may have been serving in Castellar Rock, so there's a bit more of a proximity when, um, when Cersei went to get the prophecy from Maggie the Frog. Um, he's also, I mean, the fact that he's a part of the faith also gives it a double meaning for brother, because he's also, they're called the good brothers. That's why they were referred to each other, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think this is unlikely just because he's, he seems to have found peace on the quiet. Uh, I doubt he would probably inject back into the story. Yeah, I think it has to be one of Cersei's actual literal biological brothers, otherwise the prophecy has no dramatic weight behind it, you know? If she gets strangled by some random schmo in King's Landing, odds are he's probably a younger brother. But that's, that's not an interesting prophecy, so, yeah. Do you want to hear a crackpot theory? <laughs> Alright, let's hear it, let's hear it. Okay, so, Kyburn amputates Jamie's hand, yeah, in Book 3. Yeah, well, well, he, he gets cut off, cut yeah. off, but he, he manages to make Jamie not use his arm, yeah. But we never learn what happened to it. Um, so what if he actually kept it and used it as part of his Frankenstein creation with Gregor? And what if, uh, un-Gregor as he's called, or Robert Strong, what if during a child of seven he goes crazy and sort of starts attacking people and he ends up strangling Cersei with Jamie's hand? That's amusing to but, uh, Yeah, way too left field. I think, yeah, we have a perfectly clear candidate, um, and which would be executed in an emotionally satisfying way, so, yeah. I just, I guess I just like the idea of Cersei a monster turning against her. Yeah, and that is a running theme of this prophecy, in that um, her attempts to uh, prevent it from happening only accelerate the process. Um, it's something she can't quite escape. Yeah, it's a bit like Shakespeare's Macbeth. You get the prophecy, you try and pervert it, and you end up falling, and so it's that. So uh, going against that idea of free will, trying to playing a role and going through the motions, and you can't escape your faith. Um, and the final line, I mean, the sort of coda to the line is um, is Malara, Cersei's friend. She says, "I get three questions: two, will I marry Jamie? Will I marry Jamie?" And Maggie replies, "Not Jamie, nor any any other man. Worms will have your maiden head. Your death is here tonight, little one. Can you smell her breath? She is very close." And Cersei recalls hearing Malara scream when she's been pushed down the well. The implication is that Cersei's pushed her down the well to stop anyone talking about the prophecy. Yeah, Cersei couldn't handle that someone else knew about this prophecy, so yeah, she ended up killing her best friend. Which is a separate theory, but just seems very likely from the information we have. And also possibly je a jealousy of Jamie. Yeah, also the idea that only she gets Jamie, and you know, Jamie and Cersei have that very toxic relationship. Um, 
which prevents them from forming bonds with really anyone else. And do we hear much about Maggie the Frog outside of this theory? Um, we know that she hailed from the East, um, but she's also the great grandmother of Jane Westerly, who's Rob's wife in the books. Yes, there is a, a bit of a connection with some other known characters. So she is mentioned once or twice, but yeah, her main role is essentially being the harbinger of doom for Cersei. It seems like she might be connected to uh, Marion Mastua and I do the Magi's in this sense. Possibly, yeah. I mean, we see a lot of examples of weird uh, mages and magi uh, coming from the East, and they all tend to be exoticized, so. Um, yeah, it's possible. Um, is there anything you want to say about anything? I'm sure we'll move on to the next bit. Um, I'll just say that um, the variety of counter theories that have been proposed for this, who would be an appropriate younger brother, I would say this also stems from, you know, Feast of Crows was released 12 years ago. Um, so again, some people have been thinking of this idea that Jamie would be the one to do it for, yeah. 11, 12 years, and after a while, the shock does wear off to us, the reader. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the shock will necessarily wear off um, to Cersei. She'll be totally surprised when she gets strangled by Jamie. Um, yeah, and I think that just represents, yeah, fandom's desire to continually be shocked to find something that's just bizarre and out there. Okay, so let's move on to our third and final theory which is the Merlin Conspiracy, and I think this is definitely definitely on the more tinfoil uh, side of the spectrum, but I think it, it's so creative, there's so much detail in this theory, I just love it. Um, so there is there. So we'll just go through a quick recap. Um, so Merlins are a legendary aquatic creature which feature prominently in Westerosi songs, carvings, sigils, and place names. They are described as having the upper body of a human and the tail of a fish, or sometimes as being humanoids with fish-like features such as gills, scales, and webbed limbs. Uh, Tyrion says the fisherfolk of Lannisport often glimpse them in the surf. Aaron Greyjoy preaches uh, that in the drowned gods watery falls there are mermaids to attend to your every want. However, sailors in the shivering sea tell stories of merlings trying to drag them into the surf to devour them. In the House of Black and White, Arya observes a statue called the Merlin King. Which people, which people worship as a god. So far, we have not directly encountered any Merlins in the book. However, other previously mythical entities such as dragons, white orcs, giants, and children of, children of the forest have all made appearances, leading readers to suspect that uh, Merlins will as well. Some fans have even speculated that Merlins are actually playing a key role in the story that have mastered presence. Yes, one of the key ideas on people being secret Merlings um, is the theory that both Varys and Illyrio are having Merlings in disguise. Well, it is a bit, it's hard to say with a straight face, but yeah, people have put together some genuinely compelling evidence. Um, first one is simply when Arya overhears Varys and Illyrio in the crypts of the Red Keep. Um, she hears a lot of dripping water and supposedly they come out of a well. And she goes to try and follow them, but all she finds is a scream, um, and Varys and Lyric have supposedly vanished. Well, it's a sewer that leads to the river. Oh, yeah, yeah. Connected to the river. Um, what else? Tyrion, when he describes Varys, he also has a lot of um, fish-like adjectives. Um, he mentions Varys as having you know, fishy lips, fish-faced eyes. Um, 
Yeah, and he makes he has a line about um, throwing Varys into the sea. He gets angry at it, and Varys replies, "You might be disappointed in the results. The storms come and go. The big fish, the little fish, and I keep on paddling." Um, uh, somewhat evidence. Um, it could also, just be a, a vivid metaphor. Yeah, yeah, it could just be a good example of prose. Um, and then finally, you just have the word Varus, um, which in Indian uh, translates to Varish, which means sleeping in the ocean. Uh, who knows? Um, and then, in the world of Ice and Fire Compendium, we learn about an ancient race called the Deep Ones, which have uh, terrorized various civilizations. Legends from the free city of Lorem tell of uh, misshapen beasts rising from the sea to slaughter their men and mate with their women. The folk of the Thousand Isles are terrified of the water and sacrifice passing sailors to stone idols which resemble fish-headed gods. Um, according to Maester Theron, the Deep Ones are responsible for several ancient and mysterious structures, including the Sea Stone Chair, the foundations of Old Town, uh, the ancient, the ancient ruin of Yin and the walls of Ashai by the Shango. Now these structures are made of an oily black stone, which is set, which is set to drink water. Um, and Maester Yandel believes that it is the deep ones who inspired the myths of the Merlings and the religion of the drowned god. Uh, the Ironborn treat the sea stone chair as a holy relic. Um, and even believe they are more closely related to Merlings than to humans. Uh, so, yeah, I guess to me these accounts elevate the existence of Merlings beyond a mere curiosity to something of tremendous power and malevolence, you know, on par with the, the White Walkers potentially. Um, I don't know. As, you know, some fans have even speculated that um, the ultimate conflict is between, not between White Walkers and men, but between White Walkers and the Old Ones. And what humans are just pawns within this? Yeah, humans, I guess, are pawns or thralls in between the two. So, like, yay or nay, conspiracy. It depends on what type of Merlin conspiracy, because there are so many variants. Um, no way I believe that Varys and Illyrio are Merlins. I think, I think that specific theory was devised in A Feast for Crows. Um, when we didn't know their true motivations, um, and so this was just a way of filling in the blank. Um, I think they're very definitely human with human motivations. But I think going back to just the, the appearance of this oily black stone, the folklore tales that keep popping up, you know, if you make a map of Westeros and put little pins down on where these keep appearing, it's staggering really. And it does suggest that at one point in time there may have been this ancient race of Creatures from the sea that dominated the known world, um, but now all that remains are ruins. Yeah, I would have said before the world of ice and fire, I would have said nay. However, the fact that Mark keeps bringing up the deep ones as this ancient evil, it seems important. Um, like, I doubt they'll actually play a major role in the story. I think it's just meant to be part of the lore. Um, and I guess it also serves as a kind of folkloric interpretation of nature, natural disasters, you know, the way avalanches interpreted as giants and something like that. Um, however, having said that, we actually do see giants and other mythical animals, so it's not necessarily out of the question. Yeah, and another theme is that magic is returning to this world after a long period of decline, and yeah, it's not inconceivable that we could see Merlins. Um, I guess the role, uh, the question is what role will they play in the plot? 
or the big or will it be something more peripheral? Yeah, I think the theory itself is mostly you know, crazy speculation, but I don't think it's necessarily meant to be taken that seriously. I think, you know, as the previous two theories were, I think it's more an exercise in fan creativity, and it just shows how Martin's world building um, that theories like this can be mined from, how deep the world building is. Um, but, uh, I mean, there are a few other early candidates. Um, is there anything you thought of? Maybe I know there's uh, Wyman Mandley, just because his symbol is uh, a Merlin for a sigil, um, and also the fact that he is fat. And again, people have theorized that people are fat because they're huge, they're fish people wearing human skins. Um, and there's a few other houses like, um, is that the Lonely Light or is it the Iron Horn? Which one was it? Which, which one was that, sorry? It's the one that everyone hates. They have webbed feet, don't they? Oh, the webbers from the Sister Islands, the central one. Oh, yeah, there's the Sister Islands, but there's another family. Cod? House Cod? Yeah, I think it's Cod. Yeah, so you do encounter some of these humans that have these fish face looks to them, particularly as you go east. Um, yeah, which does suggest a legitimate presence of something, something dark and some, mysterious. Yeah, some ancient, you know, connection. It's like the idea that humans are the ones that have come out on top, but, you know, a thousand, you know, ten thousand years ago there were a few different humanoid races and humans the only ones left. Um, another character who seems to be connected to the Merlings is Stannis' called Jester Patchface, who isn't in the show, but plays a He's, sort of, he's always hanging around in Stannis' chapter. Um, and his backstory is that when he first arrived at Dragonstone, his ship sunk in a storm and he washed ashore five days later and he, he suffered brain damage and has since only been able to spout these demented uh, limericks and rhymes. But fans have noted that these rhymes actually foreshadow future events in the, uh, in the series, such as Renly's assassination and the Red Wedding. So it's that, that notion of drowning and resuscitating, being connected to magic and prophecy and the rhythms of time and space uh, seems to be bound up in, in the Drowned God. It, I mean, this, book two is when Patchface and the Drowned God were introduced, so maybe, you know, maybe uh, that was Martin adding something, a wrinkle to the story. Yeah, specifically he's mentioned as drowning for three days when a ship goes under and he washes up on shore three days later, he's like bone cold. Um, but then he just suddenly comes to life, which is very mysterious. It seems impossible, but for a supernatural causes. Yeah. So you can't always speculate. And the, I think like the idea is that the peasants say, oh, he, he traded his sea for the ability to uh, learn to breathe on the water. Um, some sort of pact was made with the Merlins or whatever. Um, I mean, I dismissed that as just being really stupid at first when I first read it, but, you know, with the appearance of the world of ice and fire and all this, you know, oily black stone, all of this mythos being so well established, um, it makes me consider it, take it a little more seriously, the idea that maybe something did happen to Thatchface, you know, what made him demented, you can only say these really weird songs about what happens under the sea, Occasionally he gets um, prophecies, and obviously they, they're right, they end up being right, so... What's the Red Wedding one? Like, it's King's Blood, Fool's Blood, Blood of the Maiden's Thigh, something like that. Yeah, but yeah. Chains for the Guest, Chains for the Bridegroom, I, I, I... Yeah. I it's songs I, I think are it's really, so silly. silly. <laughs> I, don't know what, I, don't, I don't know why they put Shuri in the same room as him, I think I'd be worried. Um, another candidate fans uh, put up there is Sir Mandon Moore, the Kingsguard. And this is the this is the king's guard that tried to kill Tyrion. Um, Ian Beatty mentioned earlier. Um, 
And he's repeated, like, a bit like Varys, he's repeatedly referred to as having fish eyes or dead eyes and of having no life of duty. And uh, yeah, more attempts to kill Tyrion during the Battle of the Blackwater, but Tyrion is never able to figure out who ordered the assassination. And, you know, fans have speculated, what if it was uh, the setting fire of the Blackwater? And then that, the killing of thousands of sea mice sort of uh, sent more into a blind rage. It's possible. I think that it's just much more likely that it was just a human, Cersei, Littlefinger, Joffrey, someone with incredible... Joffrey's probably the most likely candidate. Yeah, someone with incredible uh, ability to order the Knight of the King's Guard to assassinate Tyrion. And I think, honestly, I think it's just a single line about him having fish eyes, um, and fans might have made a bit too much of that. Although, curiously, when Podrick pushes the armored knight into the water, he doesn't scream. His body is never found, so it's that it's that lack of an explanation that fuels these theories. I think. I think he sings because he's wearing armor, and he doesn't scream because he probably fell really fast into the fucking water. <laughs> he's probably buried in shipwreckage or something. Um, there's a mention in the Feast of Crows, the Squishes. Brienne learns about them while she's traveling through Crackclaw Point, and they're, they're sort of these these men with large heads covered in scales that eat men horse, and that's another little, little tidbit. Um, but I think I think the closest that we're going to get to the Merlings playing an actual role is through Euron, um, who's really emerged as one of the most formidable villains in the series. You know, probably the White Walkers than Euron, someone to definitely be feared in the upcoming books. Yeah, and he seems to derive a lot of his power from the mystique of the religion of the Drowned God, the, the idea of the old ways and taking on towers and and sacrificing, a bit like, I guess, Melisandre with the Red God, sacrificing to the Drowned God in order to, to summon uh, and wield the power of the gods against your enemies. And you just get the sense in this chapter that something awful is about to happen. There's something very terrible that's just lurking on this little surface. That's just, gonna, just an elemental dread that you can't quite articulate. Um, also, the deep ones actually appear in, in a previous series, uh, the writing of H.P. Lovecraft, which is a horror writer from the 19th century, who Martin seems to, seems to really get a lot of his weird, uh, creepy horror from. Yeah, he has cited H.P. Lovecraft as one of his main inspirations, particularly for his horror writing. And, and like in A Song of Ice and Fire, Lovecraft describes him as human fish hybrids associated with the worship of Cthulhu, who's this kind of uh, deep sea monster, this kraken thing, which it connects to the drowned dog and the and also, the mantra of the drowned god, what is dead may never die, was probably lifted from a Lovecraft couplet, which is, uh, that is dead which can, sorry, that is dead which can lie eternal, and with strange eons, even death may die. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this was, uh, in George's way, a homage to H.P. Lovecraft, um, but also something that will have a peripheral effect on the plot in some small way. Any thoughts on what the Merling conspiracy, what their end game could possibly be? I can tell you what's not going to happen. We are not going to see an army of fish people rising from the sea, declaring war on humans and know, raising fish zombies. That's the role of the White Walkers. That's what's always been established as belonging to the White Walkers since the first chapter they were introduced, you know, since the first ten minutes of the show. Um, if we got a twist like that, that would just be silly. It would just, it would be surprising, but it wouldn't be emotionally satisfying. It would be out of nowhere. I think 
yeah, varies being a Merlin. It doesn't make a lot of sense why once you start start to scrutinise it, just because he's so loyal to the Targaryens. Um, some fans have speculated he wants to use the dragons to melt the wall, basically. And then the water level goes up. I guess the yeah, sea levels rise, and that would, that would give the Merlins free reign. Again, it's, it's all just a bit of fun. I don't think fans really take it that seriously. Yeah, is there anything more to say on the Merlin conspiracy? I think that's about all there is to say on it. Um, yeah, unlike R plus equals J or who is the Valonka, there is, yeah, only bits and pieces to work with here. I don't think you're ever meant to know the full details of, yeah, everything that goes on. It's much more up for speculation in this case. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's sort of like that probably wraps up the formal part of our discussion. Um, was there any questions? Uh, any questions for us, or any theories you'd like to to address that we haven't, or, or any questions about the one we have? Any theories you'd like to discuss? <laughs> Anything you might have wondered if it's true or not? Do you want to hands up! Hands up! Can we have our microphone runner? <laughs> All right, Duncan, you just give your mic. <laughs> Oh, um, click aimbot. Okay, so this is the idea. Actually, Duncan, you can explain this because I'm a little vague on the details, but it's the idea that the hound is going to have a dramatic showdown with a mountain. Yeah, so that these two brothers that hate each other to death, um, they both died at different points. So, Gregor Clegane was killed by Sander, by the Red Viper, in, in, uh, that, in that trial, and the hound was killed. Who killed the hound? You were just given a death blow and just wasted away. Now, fighting the Tickler and yeah. Oliver, um, and he was left for dead essentially. So and these characters are, were assumed to be dead, however, it's implied that they're both still alive, that uh, Gregor Clegane has been resurrected by Clyburn as Robert's Tron, this yeah, kind of zombies. Absolutely. It features prominently in, in the last uh, season of Game of Thrones. And the hound that's implied was rescued by the brothers of the Clyburn and is living as a monk there. Um, but now with Cersei's trial upcoming, um, Robert Strong has been named a champion, but the Faith need a champion, and who could they choose? Who have they got That's in their the idea. In their stock? They've got the Hound, this incredibly fierce warrior. So the idea is these two brothers that have died, they're going to be resurrected and fight each other. And that's the game of this ultimate showdown between the two brothers. Yeah. What do you think? Part of my brain can appreciate uh, how this would work out, you know, yeah, these two brothers, particularly the Hound, who's hated his brother but his whole life and has always been after revenge and has just wanted to kill him so badly and now he gets his final chance. Um, that's a bit satisfying, but thinking at it from another angle, when you look at the, the ending that essentially the Hound got, um, the last time we see him, we're told that, you know, he's lame, he's... Uh, become a monk essentially on this quiet island and that he was uh, recuperated by this other brother who sort of acted as a therapist essentially and, and got him to release his hate and now he essentially has something better, you know, he, he's no longer driven by his hate that's in his entire life, he's found peace through religion. Um, and I think that is a bit more satisfying than any sort of major showdown. I don't think people always going for revenge is necessarily um, the most satisfying outcome. I love the sort of the meme, the further around it on the internet, you know, click and we'll get hyped. This ultimate People show really want it to happen. <laughs> I know that. There's lots of compilation videos on, on YouTube about it, which are really cool. 
But I think the more narratively satisfying thing would be that the hound has found peace, that he's sort of, I guess the hound has died, that's the line that the brother says, but Clegane, that uh, Samuel Clegane lives, he's found a sense of peace, he's shared the violence, the hatred that's kind of poisoned his whole life. And I think it's a more elegant ending if he just drifts into nothing that we never hear about him again. He's yeah, just fades away from the story. Yeah, just a month toiling away, you know, digging graves, mending his, uh, his past sins, trying to find peace. Um, I think that's more, more satisfying. Um, yeah, but who knows? I guess we could, we could say. Well, concerning, yeah, the show, yeah. Um, as we know, uh, The Hound has had a bit of a different outcome. You know, he obviously appeared to die, but then was resurrected, well, not resurrected, but came back to life, essentially. It's another thing the show confirms that Sandor is alive. Yeah, this was, this was just a theory in the books. Um, people put two and two together and it's like, oh, it's a really big guy. He has injuries that match what we know. Maybe this is the hound. It, I mean, it actually shows there is some uh, credibility to a lot of these theories, that, that they could be true, that the fans have actually accurately pieced things together. I wouldn't be surprised if clicking will happen in the show because um, the direction that they're taking the hound is something different. It's not, he's not ending his days as a monk on the quiet aisle. He's joined up with the Brotherhood. He's, I mean, his hatred is renewed. He watched all the brothers slaughtered. He's back in the game. Yeah. I don't know if he'd stand much, much of a chance though because he's sort of weak in a bit. He's wounded. He's been recovering. He hasn't really been fighting. Whereas Robert Strong seems invincible. Just this yeah, he's like attained superhuman strength or whatever so, resurrection does to you. But um, I don't reckon his chances. I don't know. I, we'll see. I think, you know, um, someone not being able to fight as well for the show, that's never really mattered. Um, Jamie seems to fight very well now despite losing his dominant hand. And maybe he'll learn from the Red Viper's mistake and not, you know, and goes to go for the finisher. Yeah. But yeah. I, would, I just think that with the show, they might have been unsatisfied with uh, Sandy Cookane's very low-key send-off, and I think they probably wanted a more climactic end, or just just to keep the hound around, because obviously Rory McCain, is that yeah. something? He's, he's obviously a fan favourite, so their motto might be, let's use him and not lose him. Yeah, I, I'd love to see it on the show, but I don't think it'll happen. So. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of kind of my opinion as well. So, get hype and don't get hype. Both. <laughs> uh, any other questions? Any other theories people wanted to put out there? <laughs> That's okay. Um, any theories you wanted to put out there? Um, who do you think is going to end up on the Iron Throne? I don't think there will be an Iron Throne at the end. I, think, I, I feel like that will be a regression because the Targaryens will just, you know, out. The idea of Danny coming back and reclaiming it, it's like, well, what was the point of it? We're just back in square one again. You know, as, as, as Ian and Dominic were saying, there's going to be a mad king again down the line if we just start the whole thing again. So yeah. what's the point? I feel from a thematic just level, we've had ample evidence that this grand, powerful monarchy structure coming from King's Landing is not good for Westeros. You know? yeah, I mean, the whole series is this scathing indictment of feudalism that doesn't work. Yeah, and when you have rulers like, you know, King Joffrey, who are just terrible, and the Mad King, it's just like, I can't imagine a system of monarchy being installed that wouldn't be satisfying at the end. So it's not just that, it's good people being terrible rulers. It's people like Ned failing completely despite being so honorable. It's the system itself that's broken. Yeah, so, you know, even if Daenerys 
takes the Iron Throne and she sits on it and obviously she has good intentions. She wants to achieve good things and she starts a, another Targaryen dynasty that goes for 300 years. What about her children? What if she gives birth to the next mad king that burns all of Westeros we, down? I mean, we don't even know if she can give birth. Yeah, it seems likely that she might be barren or infertile from her uh, botched pregnancy. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in the show, she keeps talking about wanting to break the wheel, so maybe Danny herself has some new system she wants to implement. She wasn't too successful in Meereen, so I don't know how she's going to do with Seven Kingdoms. Mm. But um, I don't know, like, I don't know, I guess it's really Danny and John. They're the only people who want to, everyone else is playing the Game of Thrones, they're the only people who want to genuinely, genuinely reform things. So I guess we kind of have to place our hope in those guys. I mean, I, I envision, just with the White Walkers, I envision wholesale apocalypse. Just once yeah. the wall gets kicked down, they're going to wade through and they're going to render all of these tiny dynastic struggles and petty grievances, just render them, render them utterly moot. Um, and it's going to be, you know, Stark and Lannister fighting side by side against against death itself. Fighting for life, essentially. And, and all those graves, all those war graves, all of the south. Once the wall's broken, they're, they're going to start rising and the dead will, the dead will rise again. So, I don't know, that, I mean, that feels a bit too out there for the very measured kind of medieval gritty reality that, that Mark has created. But I think it would also be an awesome subversion to have such a richly detailed medieval world and then just give us, you know, Dawn of the Dead. I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to see. I don't think it'll necessarily be one or the other. We're not going to have a, just a, a brutal cut from court intrigue and politics and, oh, now it's the zombie apocalypse. I think they'll be integrated. You'll get some people that are like, we need to band together and fight, and you'll get some people being pathetic, cowardly humans and being what they can get. Well, would it be court intrigue with the others? Or the yeah, court intrigue, but taken up to 11. I think. Yeah, the Winter Palace, sort of a marriage alliance between others and men or something. Yeah, and I, I see, I think it's very likely that the Iron Throne will be destroyed in some way, shape, or form, just because that would make a really good metaphor for you were fighting over this who's in this chair the entire time, but now it's gone because it's not important ultimately at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's either apocalypse or it's going to be a new system, some kind of development away from the 17 minutes. I don't know what it could be. Someone mentioned democracy, I don't think it's going to go that far. Not quite democracy, maybe a council? Yeah, um, yeah a council or sort of nation states, like the nation of the world, the nation of the world, something like that. I, don't, I really don't know. I, don't, I mean, the three cities, I guess they're, they're almost a bit further along in Westworld, so something, maybe something closer to that, where you have this sort of merchant middle class that has power. And that takes, takes the center stage instead of the aristocracy. Which yeah. I guess is what Varys is trying to do. He's picked this figurehead in Aegon, which we don't even know is an actual legitimate head to the Targaryens. But you've got these three cities using him to kind of set up a, a, a stable system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's possible. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know what the, only Mark knows the ending. We did actually, I mean, there was that, do you remember that three-page outline of the whole series that was released? Yeah, with the final paragraph blocked out. Just, yeah, but it seems quite clear that the battle with the, with the others was the climactic. Um, yeah, that was always intended to be the end, and will probably certainly be the end, as is with our final form. Uh, yeah, so I mean, there's, there's heaps of theories, there's heaps of uh, theories and prophecies out there. There's the Southern Ambitions theory, Grand Orton conspiracy, uh, Grand Tyrell conspiracy, the Faceless Man. A lot of, yeah, conspiracies have been sort of chucked on these various factions. I, 
don't, yeah, I tend to think majority aren't true, but yeah. some are compelling. Did you like the Meridian's plot or the, uh, the survey of what's happening in Meridian and Poison Locust and all that? Yeah, so this is an essay series that was about five or six parts, and basically it summarizes uh, what Danny's arc in A Dance with Dragon was, what she was trying to do, what was achieved, and how it resonated with her internal conflict. So it's basically the idea of she has to choose between peace or war, and she doesn't want war, she doesn't want to see her children, which are like her slaves, um, suffer anymore without slaves. Her freed slaves, sorry. Um, and so she makes a bunch of decisions to favor peace, essentially. That's the start. Yeah, she sort of compromises in this. It's actually a really great essay because it's, it's a lot of trying to solve mysteries like who tried to poison her, what's really going on, who is the the, uh, the harpy, but it also works it into the narrative relevance and the character arc that Danny's going through, and the fact that she's really torn between two desires: the desire to to save the children, to, to I mean, I guess to regain the children that she lost in Book One, but also her other children, which are the dragons, and she's forced to choose between the slaves or the dragons. She chooses the she tries to help the slaves for so long, the, the freed slaves, but ultimately she chooses the dragon and the, the chips are down. And she has that great, I guess, spirit walk in the desert in the very final chapter, and, and she, she hears the grass saying, you know, you're a Targaryen, you're a dragon, dragons don't sow seeds, they don't sow the fields, they go along, you're a conqueror, you have to remember who you are. And that's kind of the uh, realization that she grasps as she wants to be a conqueror. So she's, I guess, decided something about her path forward. So we might see a bit more of a decisive Danny, a bit more resolved, and hopefully the, the Meridies not will be untangled. It'll be cut through, and we can move on to other places. Yeah, I mean, the Marion storyline is often criticised just because it seems so irrelevant that the characters aren't, aren't that engaging. We never really get to know the Marion the people to any great degree. Um, and because it's most of it's from Danny's point of view, we can't really trust anything. But um, I think there are some interesting things going on there, at least from Danny's point of view, about figuring out what kind of rule she wants to be learning what it is to govern, which is essentially what a lot of the book is about, what it is to govern. There's, uh, Martin has a famous line about Lord of the Rings, where Lord of the Rings ends with Aragorn became king and he ruled, he ruled wisely for many years. And Martin was like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to rule wisely? What did he do what with the tax policy? Yeah. How did he deal with the orcs? Does he condone genocide to kill all the orcs? Being an honourable man, as we see in his grand statement with that stuff, is not a sure success victory or a peaceful rule, um, that unwillingness to compromise can lead to greater suffering down the line. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of his central thesis, is what is it to rule, what is it to govern the, the uh, fates of other people. I feel like Danny's A Dance with Dragons chapters could have been improved just if there were less of them. I feel like that was a section of the book that needed a really good edit. Yeah, I, I think the actual core story is great. It's just, and I actually really like the embarrassing chapters because we get more of a, a, a view of the trenches and him really dealing in. And you can see that these slaves or these, these uh, Meridians are actual people. So I think, yeah, just condensing it a bit would have given it a lot more, uh, a lot more pace and dimension. But I think it, it starts really well and ends really well. So I'm excited for the. Uh, Battle of Fire, the Battle War of Mary's Nets. At the, yeah. beginning, at the beginning of Winds of Winter, I think it's going to be really good. Um, so there's, there's, of course, the House of the Undying, which is a, a trunkload of prophecies. It is, it's a gold mine. Um, 
So we can, did you want to, did you want to go through that and see if there's any... I think we could be work here all day discussing what, the House what, of the Undying prophecies. Well, what's interesting is most of it seems to be solved. Um, so Danny's looking through various doors and she sees uh, a beautiful naked woman being ravaged by four little men who resemble a dwarf servitor. So most, what, what's the interpretation there? Is it meant to be Westeros? Yeah, I believe that's the most metaphorical of them and it represents Four dwarves represent four kings fighting over Westeros, and ultimately, um, Westeros is suffering for it, I would say. That's the most common interpretation. Yeah, the four kings at that point, I guess. Uh, the next door she looks through, she sees a feast of slaughtered corpses holding cups, spoons, and food, with a dead man with a wolf's head sitting on an iron throne wearing an iron crown. And it seems like a pretty obvious foreshadowing of the Red Wedding, which we, this is, I mean, this is book two, so this is a foreshadowing of a major event that's happening in the next book. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, interesting to know that the Red Wedding was planned as early as book two. But when you look at the story, it must have been planned from the beginning, honestly. I think it was. I think the first book was meant to end, end with the Red Wedding um, until it was sort of broken out into a, a longer series. Um, but it's such a vivid and scary, a lot of these, a lot of the things she sees from these doors are so scary and I think it describes the man with the wolf's head following her and you can hear, you can his eyes following her. So I, I don't know what that's meant to represent, like, that, that Rob would have lived if she'd gone to, to Westeros earlier or if there's, if there's any kind of connection between the two, because, I mean, why is she having the vision or does Rob start to to her? I think it's just meant to be scary because this is obviously George using a lot of his established horror writing techniques and he wants the House of the Undying to be a scary place to make you feel not at ease. Uh, the third door she looks through, we get Dan Daenerys' childhood moment with the red door in Bravos, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, I mean, proponents of Arcos Elegance Demon say, oh, it's, he's trying to hint at something, there's something that's not quite right. I think it's literally just a vision of a child. It's a classic temptation because she then sees um, William Tarry, who's a, like a father figure to her, yeah. um, who's obviously dead. This is just, again, the idea of the, the House of the Undying being a living entity and trying to lure her into a trap. Yeah, because she's not supposed to go through the door. She's allowed to look, but if she goes through it, she'll basically be trapped in this yeah. psychedelic trance. So yeah, classic temptation, I would say. Uh, the fourth door is a throne room with dragon skulls on the walls where a king resembling Ares, the second Targaryen, sits on a barbed throne and appears to give orders to burn the Red King during the Sack of King's Landing. So this is also recapped in Book 3 by Jamie. So again, it seems to be a real prophecy. So there seems to be a lot of truth in the, in the House of the Undying that we're seeing. Yeah, so that's just obviously a, a flashback of sorts to yeah, her father and Jane, who her father's talking to. And I think this might have a key role um, somewhat later down the track when Daenerys discovers the full truth about her father. I mean, she knows now that he's called the Mad King, but I don't think he... She obviously doesn't know about the wildfire plot that he had to burn down the of King's Landing. And what do you think that'll do? Because Danny is so self-righteous that he was... You know, the usurper's dogs, she refers to Robert Stark's allies as that these were monsters who, who committed atrocities against the Targaryens. This is all filtered through the series, obviously. What do you think her response will be when she realises what a horrible monster her father was? Will she have to reassess who she is? Yeah, I think she'll have a crisis of faith, essentially. The faith in herself as just being the ultimate Avenger, the, the righteous heir to the throne. I mean, that might even be the catalyst for reflecting on maybe this isn't the best system. Maybe 
this won't work. This is this feeling system isn't working. Or maybe she, that's just not something she's even interested in anymore. Yeah. Attaining the Iron Throne. Um, and the final door is oh no, sorry, there's the fifth door, a, a room where a silver-haired silver-haired man names his son Aegon. Uh, says the child is the prince of his promise and plays a heart. So this is obviously Rhaegar. Rhaegar talking to his wife, Elia, um, and they've just had their second child, Rhaenys and Aegon, and then obviously, yeah, Rhaegar says there must be one more, referring to, yeah, three people, three important senior figures. Now, the prince that was promised, this is an important figure in the series. Um, we're not sure, it seems to be the same figure as Azor Ahai, which is the... Yeah, George has confirmed that they are the same character. So this is the figure that Malisandre keeps talking about. Um, and the myth of Azor Ahai is... Uh, it's, um, it's from Ashai. It's this figure from Ashai, isn't it? And this was during the long night when the others were coming. And which was supposedly 8,000 years ago. Yes. Yeah. And Malisandre says, in, ancient book, in the ancient books of Ashai, it is written that there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the, from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes. And he who clasps it shall be Azor Ahai come again, and the darkness shall flee before him. And then uh, the follow-up quote is, When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again amidst salt and smoke. And people tend to think that is Danny because at the end of book one and well, the first half of book, book two, you get the, the red comet above uh, above the world, and she is sort of figuratively reborn in the fires when, when her dragons are born. Yeah, she's obviously one of the candidates that fits the bill um, for this yeah very vague uh, prophecy. And the smoke, I guess, is the pyre, Drogo's Drogo's pyre. I'm not sure, I can't remember what the salt was. Did it take place in a desert? I know the show, it took place in a desert, but I think they're on the edge between the Red Wastes and the Dothraki Sea. Maybe that was a desert, maybe that counts as the requisite salt. And what's interesting is this figure seems to appear in the mythology or the origin stories of lots of different civilizations. Uh, you have Azor Ahai in Shai, that's their figure. Um, the Andals in Valeria are referred to as the prince that was promised. Uh, the North and the First Men, they have the last hero. Uh, and then in the East, you have the patrimony of Hirakun. They have Hirakun the hero. You have uh, Yiti. They have Yintar Nefer. They call him Neferian. And then there's another figure called Ad uh, Edric Shadow Chaser. So every, every civilization seems to retell this, this story, which suggests. I don't know what it suggested, but it's, it suggests that there are multiple messianic saviour figures that appeared last time, or one person that was given different names. Yeah. It makes a question though, this is like, this sort of information of this one person has travelled at a long distance, mm -hmm. and, you know, it seems almost unfeasible that this information would be able to travel across the entire known world. So the, the fact that it reoccurs multiple times implies that there was some kind of figure, one kind of some kind of lone warrior who fought back the darkness or led the charge of, of the living against the dead, and that maybe we'll see him reborn. Um, the two two top candidates would be Danny and John because they're seen as the the, uh, the prophetic heroes, I guess, of the story. Um, so that's that's the last vision she sees through a door. 
Um, she also sees a splendor of wizards who falsely claim to be the, the undying of path and offer to teach Daenerys the secret speech of dragon kind. So that's the last temptation that she's haunted. Yeah, and then she gets to the yeah, real undying themselves, who sound terrifying. It's described as like a purple heart floating above them, and they're these sort of spirits. The corpses are, yeah, atrophied and dried out husks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a, that chapter is awesome. It's, it's such a such a scary. There's so much horror imagery in that chapter. Just the, the thumping of the heart and Danny running down the hallway and the lights spinning out. Something observing her, watching something that's crawling through the shadows. Yeah, you really see George's penchant for horror writing shining through. Yeah, and it, I mean that is his background. Before Song of Ice and Fire, it was horror and sci-fi, and then this is his big fantasy work. And, um, and then when she gets to the real undying, she gets bombarded with about a million different visions. Uh, she sees Viserys, Targaryen's gruesome death, so that's in the past. She also sees a tall lord with copper skin and silver gold hair beneath the banner of a fiery stallion with a burning city in the background. And this has been speculated to be a, um, a future that never was, that this is Rhaegar burning a city if he lived. Yeah, her son, if he had survived the childbirth. Um, I know these prophecies come in triplets, essentially, and the, the phrase that succeeds this is Mother of Dragons, Daughter of Death. Um, and we'll just skip to the third one, that, that's Rhaegar dying on the trident. So I've always interpreted this, these three to be the three men that essentially had to die for her, for her destiny to, or her path to be what it is. And the vision she sees of Rhaegar, who famously whispers a, a woman's name before he dies. But we don't hear who the woman is. Yeah. Uh, but we, we assume many assume that it was Lyanna. Yeah. Yes. Um, and she sees a blue-eyed king who casts no shadow, raise a red sword in his hand. Stannis Baratheon. Yeah, that seems Stannis. Who else? Who else could that be? And now it gets interesting. She sees a cloth dragon swaying on poles amidst a cheering crowd. So this is referred to as a mama's dragon occasionally, and Daenerys mentions it's something you see in performances to give the heroes something to fight. Um, and so mama's dragon, there's been a couple of interpretations of this, but I think the most common one is that this represents Aegon, um, who is being championed by Varys, who is referred to as being a mama, so, or an actor. Yeah, Aegon says that this is the real Aegon, that the baby was swapped out with a commoner's baby. So the baby that died and was killed by the mountain was, was a commoner, was an Aegon. But we don't know if that's true. It could be a lie. Um, it could, you know, the boy he's produced could be Illyria's son, it could be a Blackfire, it could be all sorts of people. Um, and this triplet of information, it's succeeded by Mother of Dragons, Slayer of Lies. So I think the interpretation here is that these three phrases are the, the three lies, essentially, that Daenerys has to disprove. So, and, and Aegon is actually beating uh, Daenerys to the punch. He's actually arrived on Westeros in five, and he's sort of stealing all of the thunder, all of the secret Targaryen loyalists are flocking to him. Um, yeah. So it could lead to another dance with dragons where she arrives and, and has to fight her, uh, her, or maybe her brother? Nephew. Nephew, sorry. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll see, but if, if he is the mama's dragon, she has to slay that lion, I guess. Um, and uh, we, we, another vision she sees is a great stone beast take wing from a smoking tower, breathing shadows. And I have no idea what that means. The, the person I've recently come around to thinking that this might fit for is Euron. Um, 
not very certain, but just the idea of a, a high tower, obviously the highest tower in Western Moscow is high tower in Old Town. Um, and basically Euron taking a dragon, which seems a very likely outcome, if this form that he has given Euron does, does what it's meant to do. Um, and again, this is mentioned as being the Slayer of Lies, triplet of sentences. So I kind of wonder if Euron will be essentially used as the champion of the others, and it's up to Daenerys to, to slay him, literally and figuratively. Um, yeah, this is probably one that stumps most fans. We still don't have enough information to decipher what it means. The use of the word stone is interesting because that word, particularly in Book 5, is connected to Grayscale. Tyrion encounters these, are they called stone men? Stone men in the ruins of Froyan Roy. And uh, Shireen suffers from Grayscale as well, and it's described as basically like, sort of calcifying your flesh. So that your skin turns to what we would call stone. Yeah. Um, but another person who has it, and it's an active variation of the disease, is John Connington. Yeah, that's gone. And he's just arrived at Westeros, so maybe it's a metaphor for a disease outbreak. Yeah. A, a disease outbreak similar to the Pale Mare outbreak in Marine. Maybe, you know, we know that Ariane's going to see John Connington to treat with him. Maybe she catches it. That's a metaphor for the breath of shadow fire spreading throughout. Spreading throughout Westeros, yeah. I mean, a lot of these, it's hard to know what's, what are these visions are meant to be allegorical or literal. It's a, it's a mix of both, obviously. Um, and uh, we see a vision of Daenerys as silver trotting through the grass to a darkling stream under a sea of stars. That just seems to be a memory. So now we're into the triplet of Mother of Dragons, Pride of Fire. And so I've always interpreted this one to represent Drogo. That Drogo was Daenerys' first husband. Um, but also, it's not listed here, but wasn't there also a vision of a, a lion running through a field? Or was that a different... That comes after, I believe. Um, which some people suspected was uh, Drogo. Didn't he kill a lion for her? Yeah, he did kill a lion and present it to Daenerys. Um, the, I mean, the other theory is that the lion represents Tyrion. Yeah, it's, it's mentioned as being taller than any man, and it's obviously like a play on words. Yeah, so uh, he, Tyrion's coming to meet her, essentially. Um, and that doesn't have to do with fire, obviously. And um, another vision of a corpse standing on the prow of a ship with bright eyes and grey smiling lips. Who do you think that might be? Um, so I think this corpse... It's Aaron, um, Euron Greyjoy's brother, but I don't think it necessarily represents uh, Aaron. I think this represents Euron. Do and you don't think it's Theon returning home from the Dreadfall? I don't think so. I think because, again, this triplet is said within Bride of Fire that it might represent, in some way, uh, one of the husbands that Daenerys will marry or be involved with at some point. And I, I expect uh, some sort of extensive interaction between Daenerys and Euron when she gets to Westeros. And then the final vision is a blue flower growing from a chink in a wall of ice, filling the air with sweetness. Um, and it, it seems pretty ironclad. This is meant to represent Jon Snow's true heritage and his potential kinship to Daenerys. Yeah, it raises the question, are they going to become a couple? Will they be a power couple? I hope not. The, there's just so little room left in the narrative. Like, we only have two books left, and you know, showing he has two seasons left. It makes me wonder if they're going to have a big, meaningful relationship. It's going to take time, so 
I will be very interested to see how this plays out. So we were talking earlier, there's very few romances in this series, and romances are often shown to be very destructive, like Liana and Rhaegar plunge the kingdoms into war. So if it does happen, I'd assume it's not love, it's more of an arranged marriage. They're Just trying to wait the north and the, the Tigers alliance against the others, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that concludes the House of the Adonis. Most of it seems to come to fruition, but there's a few things that Basically, yeah, just one or two things that haven't been conclusively determined as of yet. Um, that's pretty much all I've got. Was there any questions at all? Any other questions that you've always wanted to ask? Any theories? No? That's okay. So we might wrap up? Yeah, let's, let's wrap up. So that concludes the Battles of Kingsgrave panel. Uh, if you've enjoyed our discussion, please subscribe to us on iTunes or YouTube. There's also a website that's up there. Uh, thank you for coming, and we hope you enjoy the rest of Melbourne Thrones time. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Strong.